Hello, this is Mike Johannick, Senior Fellow at Penn's Graduate School of Education. You are at the point of learning with my friend and sometimes research collaborator, Peter Horn. During our first conversation way back in 2011, Peter and I talked about how to engage students as citizens. It's been a through line in many conversations ever since. So I'm looking forward to hearing Peter and my colleague and friend, John Zimmerman, discuss why to teach controversial issues in U.S. schools. I know you'll enjoy it. On today's show, education historian Jonathan Zimmerman on the teaching of controversial issues. It strikes me that what we've done is um, we have radically limited beyond where it should go, beyond what's educationally and pedagogically proper. We've limited the free speech rights of teachers to the point where it becomes risky for them just to do their jobs. We discussed the book he co-authored with Emily Robertson, which distinguishes between actual controversies and pseudo-controversies. We wrote this book before Trump was elected president. And now if he wrote it, we would spend much more time on that distinction. I mean, I never thought the question of what is a fact would become the most important question in our political culture. But it absolutely has. And the difference between teaching and indoctrination. A teacher's duty is never to persuade you of something, except perhaps the need to create environments where everybody is allowed to speak, hear, listen, and decide on their own. As well as what's at stake in this work. Every important claim provokes or offends somebody and raises difficult feelings. If it doesn't, it's probably not that important. Jonathan Zimmerman is one of the foremost education historians working today. His work examines how education practices and policies have developed over time and the myths that often cloud our understanding of teaching and learning. A former Peace Corps volunteer and high school teacher, he has a particular interest in how political and social movements come to shape education. In addition to prize-winning research published in academic journals, Zimmerman has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Chronicle of Higher Education, the New York Review of Books, and The Atlantic. He's also no stranger to smart late-night television. Shortly after I had him as a professor in grad school, he appeared on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and advised John Oliver of Last Week Tonight for a feature exploring sex education in schools. Professor Zimmerman came to the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania after 20 years at New York University where he served as chair of the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences in NYU's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development, and won the university's highest prize for teaching. I was delighted to sit down with him in his office at Penn GSE to discuss his book, The Case for Contention, Teaching Controversial Issues in American Schools, which he wrote with Emily Robertson of Syracuse University. We spoke in late February 2020, which I mentioned for two reasons. First, 
I generally try to design podcast episodes that are not bound to a particular moment in time because A, it takes a long time for me to put these shows together, and B, I try through this podcast to showcase important ideas about what and how and why we learn that I believe will stand the test of time. So that, for instance, what Aja Monet and Megan Plunkett shared about poetry two years ago will still pop whenever new listeners check it out. Second, our world is now enduring the hard, surreal pandemic of COVID-19. Just a few weeks after we spoke, Professor Zimmerman and I wouldn't have been able to sit in the same room, and we certainly wouldn't hear relentless Philadelphia traffic outside his office window. I frankly miss lively city sounds so much right now that I've made almost no attempt to bring those down in the mix. On that note, and with a sincere wish that you and your loved ones are safe and healthy, I hope you enjoy these highlights from our conversation. Jonathan Zimmerman has written books on the history of sex education, alcohol education, culture wars, American teachers abroad, even the myths and facts surrounding our hoary notion of the Little Red Schoolhouse. His newest book is due out this fall, called The Amateur Hour. It's about the history of college teaching in the U.S. So I began by asking Zimmerman how it was that he chose to specialize in the history of education. Well, like so many things in life, it was not planned. Um, I knew from the youngest age I wanted to be an educator. And so after I was done with college, I joined the Peace Corps and I, I taught in Nepal. And then what I did was I moved to Vermont to be with my girlfriend who became my wife and I taught in Vermont. And then I followed her to Baltimore to teach in the schools there. And I was a, um, I was a great success in Nepal and in Vermont and I was a failure in Baltimore. Um, I just wasn't prepared for it in any way. Um, and I, I tried to do things exactly the same way I had done in these other environments, and I wasn't successful. And um, the only thing I knew was I wanted to continue as an educator, and I wanted to learn more history. So, Were you teaching history in, in all those Social places? studies, social yes. studies. Yeah, yeah although in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in Nepal I taught English, but in Vermont and okay. in Baltimore I taught social studies. Um, so um, don't try this at home. I applied to exactly one doctoral program. This is madness. Uh, but that's what I did. They were in Baltimore, so he applied to the Johns Hopkins University. The way I got into educational history is that I had a real mensch for an advisor, which was also luck. Um, after I applied, and Peter, I had no idea what I was doing in any way, shape, or form, but after I applied, I was, I was grading papers one afternoon, and the graduate secretary from Hopkins called me and says, we received your application, but it was incomplete. Turns out he was supposed to apply to not just the graduate program, but to a particular faculty member in that program who might become his advisor. So Zimmerman has the secretary from Hopkins calling him on the phone, pressing him for the name of the professor he'd like to work with. I like this story. So this is well before the internet, and I freak out. I say there's somebody at the door, and I say, can you hold on, please? And I go and get the paper catalog they had sent me. And I started going through it furiously, saying, who teaches uh, uh, social history, history of race, history of immigration, labor? Our period Walters, 
uh, gender unspecified. I have no idea who this is, but I get back on the phone and I say, I'd really like to work with Professor Walters. You know, I'm a long-standing admirer of Professor Walters' work. And Ron Walters became my advisor, and he was just a mensch. And to get to your question, how did I get into educational history? Because I had been a school teacher, I had it somewhere in the back of my mind that I wanted to figure out where these institutions came from and how they developed over time. Um, and Hopkins was a very conservative department at the time, not politically, but just in a dictionary sense, yeah. very old school. Uh -huh. And most of the other people that I bounced this off said things like, John, do you, do you want to eat like food? And if you do, why would you ever willingly put the word education next to your name? Don't you understand that in the United States you subtract 50 or 500 status points? Um, why would you do history of education? And Ron said to me, he said, well, is this what you're interested in? And I said, yes. And he said, well, great, then do it. That was all he needed to know. Um, and uh, um, uh, I've learned a lot from that, that in this, this teaching relationship, it, it should not be about you, it should be about the student. And Ron could see that I was curious and passionate about trying to figure out how these institutions had developed over time, and that was all he needed to know. So that's how I got into it. I asked if there's a key concept from his study of the history of education that might be of use for your average citizen to know but that they probably don't. I think there are many. Um, uh, it's, hard you, it's hard for me to rank them in import because okay. I suppose it depends on the, uh, you know, the concerns of the listener or the audience. But I would say that one really important one that most Americans don't know is that we're putting a much greater burden on education than we ever did before, especially as um, a tool of social mobility. So. Um, uh, for most of our history, formal education was not a sine qua non for social mobility. So when we lived in Baltimore, when I was in graduate school, our next door neighbor was a guy who had worked at Beth Steele his, his whole life, at Bethlehem Steele, which was just south of where we lived. He had an eighth grade education, and he owned his home. So Pete, that's never gonna happen again in the history of the United States. Yeah, it happened in, a lot. I grew up in Buffalo, right yeah. next to Lackawanna. And so, yes, yeah, and exactly. And, and, and I think that because we lack historic perspective, um, uh, we often forget how close we are to our current situation where formal education has become a sine qua non for not just social mobility, just self-sustainability. Um, that is, except for your occasional pro athlete or pop music star, nobody with an eighth grade education will ever own a home again. And this is not, by the way, because people back then were so awesome and we're not awesome, or schools back then were so great and we're not. It's because I, the I whole... I think it's because they walked to school every day <laughs> in the snow. Five oh, miles, yeah. right, yes. Both no ways. shoes, no right. feet. Right, right. Yeah, no feet. Uh, no, we're just putting a much greater burden on our schools now than we ever have before. Um, schools have become a necessity in ways that they were not for most of our history. I reminded Professor Zimmerman about a moment from the class I took with him 
a moment I once blogged about, in which he asked my colleagues and me to prioritize a set of values for our respective schools. So here were, here were two dozen school leaders, principals, heads of school, superintendents, and so on, from diverse education settings all around the country. And Zimmerman asked us, how many of you said you want your school to produce democratic citizens? The three of us raised our hands high. Oh, no, you don't, he challenged. Yeah, we do, we said. Sensing an opportunity for solidarity, more classmates chimed in. I didn't put citizenship first, but it's high on my list. Zimmerman chided, you may think you want it, but you don't actually want it. Engaged citizenship is messy and time-consuming. You want kids protesting all the time, sitting on the board, writing curriculum? School isn't set up that way. Well, just to be clear, um, obviously you're talking about a classroom where I was trying to provoke people, and, and I was not literally saying they didn't want that. But what I was saying is I think it's a minority viewpoint. You know, if you went up to most people, especially most parents, and you said to them, do you want school to teach your kids to question everything, including everything you have taught them? I think most citizens would say no. And that what I'd really like is like for my kid to be ready by the time I need to go to work. Or for my kid to develop a couple skills that they could use to um, uh, you know, get a reasonable paying job. And it's not that people are opposed to that citizenship ideal. I just think it's far down people's list of priorities. The other thing that I'll say is um, it's much harder to do. Um, especially for teachers in a society that doesn't award teachers a lot of cultural authority. Um, so, you know, if you really take that ideal seriously, the kids will question everything, including you. Yeah. How many teachers want that? How many really want that? I know the answer is some, right? Um, but that makes life ever harder. Um, so if I could just share a, a story that I often share with my students on exactly this subject. When I got back from the Peace Corps, I went to Vermont to be with Susan, and randomly, I started substitute teaching at the high school she had attended some six years earlier in South okay. Burlington. And by that time, it's March, and in U.S. history, we've gotten up to the New Deal, to the 1930s. And I come in there, you know, Mr. Jessback, Peace Corps volunteer, and I, I put all the acronyms that you had to memorize for your A-PUSH class on the board, the CCC and the WPA this, this and the... This is AP, United States History. I, I know, it was, just, it was just regular U.S. history. Oh, okay. Um, but, um, uh, you know, the CCC, the WPA, the NWA, and so on, and I said, okay, look, I'm not going to make you memorize these because, you know, I think that you'd forget them, and I don't really... Uh, um, care, frankly, how much of it you remember. What I want you to do is I want you to open up your textbook, I want you to find out what they are, and then I want you to tell me three alphabet agencies that you would support today and how you would pay for them. So let's go, let's start. I said, I'm not interested in you telling me what CCC stands for. I want to hear from you. Civilian so Conservation Corps. <laughs> Very good. Um, uh, I, I, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear what meaning you're making of this. So we start doing it, and it was slow, but we kind of got into it and seemed to be going pretty well. And maybe two days in, one of the um, kids we used to call stoners raises his hand. And stoners in the 1980s, um, you know, um, uh, they were often the most 
able students, the reason they were stoners they were is they were so alienated <laughs> by, the, by the bullshit of school. Yeah. So he raises and he says, you know, you know, Mr. Z, I've been listening to you all week about us like making our own meaning and coming to our own conclusions. Well, I've come to my own conclusion. You suck. Wow. And I would suggest, I've suggested to my students that there was, <laughs> there, there was more wisdom in his comment than even he realized in his marijuana-fed haze, that the comment was smarter than he knew. Um, of course he was trying to yank my chain because that's what adolescents do, but he was on to more than he realized, and this is what he was on to, that um, if you really take this sort of dialogic and critical thinking seriously, the students may decide that you suck. Yeah. And most people don't want that. I know I don't. I don't want my students to think that. Um, so how do you ask a group of professionals that are awarded very little authority in their culture? to take the kind of risk, that's really what we're talking about, that this teaching involves. I think it's a hard sell. Um, that's not to say I don't want to sell it, because I do. I mean, that's the wrong metaphor, but I'm a proponent of it. Um, but I think all of us have to be realistic about the social and cultural circumstances under which this occurs or doesn't. I do begin to judge books by their cover, especially nonfiction. After reading the title, The Case for Contention, Teaching yeah. Controversial Issues yeah. in American Schools, which you co-wrote with Emily Robertson yeah. of Syracuse University. I'm not surprised that much of the book frames this case, but you also spend some pages of arguing for excluding issues that are not truly controversial. Right. Can you say right. some more about this? Well, I mean, we wrote this book before Trump was elected president. And now if he wrote it, we would spend much more time on that distinction. I mean, I never thought the question of what is a fact would become the most important question in our political culture. Um, but it absolutely has. Um, and, you know, the, the, we try to draw a distinction between what's a real controversy and what's a pseudo-controversy. Um, uh, and uh, a real controversy is one where, the, where fully informed people disagree. And a fake controversy is one where fully informed people do not disagree. So um, let's take the example of evolution and creation. I understand that there are millions of my fellow citizens that do not believe that we as human beings share DNA with other creatures. Um, I will say, Pete, I believe it's their right to believe that. I would lay down everything for that. I don't believe they should be compelled to think otherwise. I think they should have every right to scream that to the hills. But I will not have that question debated in my classroom. And the reason is it's a pseudo-controversy. It's a pseudo-controversy in the sense that there are no fully informed people that deny the fact that we share DNA with other creatures. Um, I, I would not want to debate that question in my classroom because there's only one right answer. And that's not a debate. That's a pseudo-debate. Um, if, we, if we shift to climate change, yes. for example, uh, yeah. and I'm, I'm glad that you make this clarification. The book came out in 2017, but of course yes. that means, of written course, it was, written, it was written earlier. Oh, yeah, in the 19th like, century. That's when yeah, Trump yeah, right. was getting started. Exactly. Yeah. Feels like a million years ago. Yeah. Because one of the things you did do uh, you know, was, was, was uh, bring out that oft-quoted uh, quip 
um, that I've mentioned myself. Pat Moynihan. Right. To, yes. say, to say, you know, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but not their own set of facts. Uh, you say this is an essential element of democracy. But yeah. of course, we're in this moment right now where it seems like diametrically opposed sets of facts right. exist not just for people watching Fox and CNN, but because of the algorithmic magic of Facebook, um, which I, you know, I understand operates on some level of outrage, but it can let me, you know, look at this, look at this news feed, and get an entirely different sense of what's happening in the world from my yes. next door neighbor. Right. I, and I just wanted to say, like, I was at a party a couple of weeks ago where somebody said to me, this was right after uh, Mr. Limbaugh was awarded the Presidential the Medal, Medal of, Freedom. of Freedom. Yeah. Right. A smart person said to me, with a straight face, well, you know, Obama gave the Medal of Freedom, uh, Freedom to Jeffrey Epstein. No, he didn't. I know. <laughs> and this was where my this was where my jaw dropped open. Yes. But I went, uh, and I, you know, and so that was that was my response. Uh, but you know, I went, you know, I went to check this out, and there is a, you know, there. And, and the first thing when I typed in Obama, Epstein, Medal yeah. of Freedom, it was like, no, he did not give it because, of course, right. my Google is set up to go to, uh, right. you know, fact checking, right, organization. It was it was amazing that just on this basic point, this wasn't offered like I think right. Obama may have. This right. was like, well, you know about Obama, like what Obama right. did. Well, look, it seems to me you're raising a bunch of real challenges for us. I mean, one has to do with the media environment that we live in. Mm -hmm. uh, my students are often shocked to hear that when I was growing up, there were three channels. Yeah. You know, and now there are 900 and nothing's on, right? right? Um, but the larger point is of those 900 channels, you have ones that are tailored to your particular predilections and biases. Um, and and uh, then you have this thing called a news feed, which is a horrible metaphor, um, wow. yeah. that, that curates this so that <laughs> you just get information that, that fits your biases. And... Um, uh, uh, Horrible or maybe perfect, it, maybe a little too on the nose. Well, it's awful. I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, it's, it's it right, right, right. It's time for your two o'clock feed now. And, you know, I think we know from a lot of evidence that pleasure centers in your brain light up when you see things that confirm what you've believed. Um, that the kind of education that I want is in a way unnatural. I want to expose people to things that aren't yeah. them. Um, you know, to me, the most depressing literature coming out of political science shows that since the 70s, when I was in high school, we've segregated ourselves in every way ideologically. So, you know, Bill Bishop wrote this book called The Big Sword a couple years ago, and it's still very relevant. I mean, and he just looks at numbers from the 70s, and the question is, you know, do you have a neighbor of a different political party? Do you have a friend of a different political party? Do you have a lover of a different political party? Would you be okay with your kid marrying somebody of a different political party? And Pete, you look at all those questions and it's a straight line down. Just a straight declining vector. So we have segregated over ourselves over time, since the 70s, yes. We have, have segregated ourselves into ideological bubbles and the media environment is a big part of, it's not the only cause of that, right? And there are all kinds of, I think, causal loops here, but that's a big part of the story. So then the question becomes, as educators, what do we do? And yeah. to your point about Limbaugh, I think the first thing we need to do, 
and people are trying this, it's a heavy lift, is to teach people how to consume media. Right. So you might have read yeah. that, that Sam Weinberg's project out at Stanford, you know, one of the things he's doing is he's studying Stanford students to see if they yeah. can identify fake and real websites. And the takeaway is they can't. And these are arguably the most privileged kids and the best educated kids right. in America. Right. Um, so what does that say about other people um, uh, who haven't had the same privilege education? So it seems to me that's one challenge, right, that all of us have, you know. Um, and the second challenge is to expose people not to alternative facts but to alternative perspectives, right? You know, um, Dr. Conway said that there are alternative facts about Bowling Green. You may recall President Trump's advisor, Kellyanne Conway, making this assertion. I bet it's brand new information to people that President Obama had a six-month ban on the Iraqi refugee program after two Iraqis came here to this country, mm. were radicalized, and there were the master, masterminds behind the Bowling Green massacre. Well, Most people don't know that because it didn't get covered. There aren't alternative <laughs> facts about Bowling Green. Bowling Green was a scam, just like there aren't alternative facts about Obama and Jeffrey Epstein, or about Obama being born in Indonesia, you know, or about, you know, the moon landing being a fake. Right? But they're all alternative perspectives on almost everything. So you began the question with climate change. One of the things I say to my students is, if the question is, has human behavior contributed to warming the earth? That's not a debatable question. Um, again, I understand that there are millions of Americans who um, say that human behavior hasn't. Again, I believe it's their right to say and believe that, but they are wrong, all right? However, if your question is, what should we do about climate change? Or should we be in the Kyoto or the Paris Accords? There, that's not a matter of alternative facts, it's a matter of alternative perspectives. The question of should we have stayed in Paris is not a fact question. You do need facts to debate the question, but the question itself is a normative question. Yeah, it's a policy right? resolution. And yeah. those absolutely should and must be debated. Don't be so overly dramatic about it, Chuck. What it, it, you're saying it's a falsehood, and they're giving Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains wait, wait, wait. alternative that facts. Alternative facts. Since since we're getting into the way that this you know uh, can play out in the classroom, um, you know, I was interested that a theme uh, that runs through your book, uh, the case for contention is that lots and lots of schools and districts, you're, you're talking, you're focused on public schools, lots mm -hmm. of public schools and districts pay lip service to the idea of engaged citizenship and, to and, and, and as a facet of that, exploring controversial issues. It's stated in some way in many policies and yep. maybe even some mission statements. Yep. But as far as the way that plays out in the classroom, to the extent that it actually happens, or to the extent teachers are actually protected if they yes. try to engage in controversial issues, if they feel comfortable with it. And I would add, you know, if, they, if they've established a classroom environment where you can do this and yeah. not have it feel like a debate, not like, not, not um, uh, devolve into ad hominem attacks, you mm -hmm. know, where there's a respectful environment where, you know, you set that up and of course that takes time to do. Even if all those things are in place, they may not have the protection if a parent or, you know, a, a coalition of parents or, you know, whoever, community right. members, 
gets upset about it, right? It can it can very quickly explode. So I mean, it seems <laughs> like what what you're alluding to is just a massive disconnect between the stories that we tell about education and the way we practice it, and um, there's always going to be that disconnect. Um, uh, if you want to go very existential, you could say that it's part of the human condition. All of us say one thing and do another to some degree. Um, I do think in the zone we're talking about here, the teaching controversial issues, the gap is particularly sharp. So, you know, um, if you look at policy, um, lots of school districts have very explicit policies about how they support the and, and endorse the teaching of controversial, uh, controversial issues. And it's often cast in quite eloquent, sometimes flowery, okay. um, small r Republican rhetoric. You know, we need this to create citizens. We need this to protect and advance the republic. You know, we need young people with the skills and habits of democratic practice. And that's all true. I think it's 100% correct. I'm glad that you have those policies, but anybody who studies policies understands that you don't uh, enact or implement them by snapping your fingers. It's quite different to say we should have controversial issues taught in schools and to teach controversial issues in schools. The first one is an odd statement and the second one is the actual practice. And we did find in our book there's an enormous divergence here. So when you actually send people to classrooms and you look to see the degree to which they're engaged in controversial issues, it remains quite low. This is why our book is so skinny. Uh, because I'm Jewish, I can make this joke. I put it in the same category as great Jewish sports heroes. Um, you know, it's very small, and the big reason is there's been so little teaching of controversial issues. So why? I mean, I think your your question, um, in your question, you alluded to some of the reasons. Um, uh, one of them is that teachers are already overburdened with lots of other things, including preparing people for standardized oh, yeah. tests. Um, uh, they're generally not exposed to how to do this in their pre-service training. So when you interview teachers and you say, in your preparation to become a teacher, did you receive instruction or practice in the teaching of controversial issues? Most say no. So why would we expect them to do it, right? I mean, I don't play squash. If you put me on a squash court, I wouldn't know what to do. Um, so given that we don't actually explicitly prepare people for this task, it shouldn't be surprising that often they don't do it. And then what you alluded to earlier, Pete, at the very beginning was often, despite all the rhetoric about the teaching of controversial issues, teachers actually don't really have the right to do it. And when they engage in it in, in, in different ways, they've been penalized, um, disciplined, and sometimes even fired. Um, the courts in recent years have radically narrowed teachers' leeway in their own classrooms. Um, uh, and just to give you the most important case, uh, it, uh, it comes out of the, uh, the early aughts. There was a teacher in Indiana named Deborah Mayer, mm -hmm. and um, she was teaching a lesson from the district-sanctioned uh, current events magazine, Time for Kids. This was in 2003, right before we invaded Iraq. And if you remember, during the build-up to that, there were various protests when it became clear that we were going to, including yeah. a very large one at the March, National Mall. March 3rd, um, 303. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was worldwide. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so there was an article in Time for Kids about that, about the protest, including a picture of it, a picture of the protest at the mall. 
And a kid in the class, fifth or sixth grade, says, Ms. Mayor, have you ever been to a political protest? And he said, yes, as a matter of fact, I drove by one in Bloomington, this is in Indiana, recently, and I honked my horn in support. And also, I think that human beings should try to settle their differences peacefully rather than with violence, which is why I'm also the advisor to the peer mediation club of the school. Sounds like a menace. Fired. Yes. Uh, more precisely, she was not renewed. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she sued, and it worked its way up to the federal circuit court, the highest court except the Supreme Court. And the court said she just doesn't have a right to say what she was saying, that um, schools are, are the yeah. employers of teachers, and they get to dictate what teachers say. Yeah, this is one of the things that you explore, that you know, as a citizen, if she's speaking as a citizen, she has a certain yes. freedom of speech. But as a right. public school teacher, in particular, as a public school teacher, she right. is kind of an agent of the state. Right, um, but, that, but shouldn't be, is our point. You right, know, I right, mean, right. they have become, according to the courts, ventriloquists of the state. Right, right, right. But you can't prepare democratic citizens that way. Correct. Just being a mouthpiece for the been, state. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've got to model a different kind of behavior. Now, Pete, let me be clear. No right is limitless, or should be, including the free speech rights of teachers, right? I can imagine all kinds of things that a teacher could say in a classroom that would uh, earn discipline or being fired, right? Yeah. Um, you know, what if a history teacher told her students that the Holocaust never happened? Okay, I don't think that person should be teaching the school. So is that a limit on her speech? Well, of course it is, right? In the same way that, you know, uh, you, know you can't call the White House and say you want to do, you know, violence to the president. Um, right. uh, you know, I can't sexually harass my students, right? right? Um, these are all limits on my speech, and it strikes me there are legitimate limits on my speech. But um, uh, it strikes me that what we've done is um, we have radically limited beyond where it should go, beyond what's educationally and pedagogically proper. We've limited the free speech rights of teachers to the point where it becomes risky for them just to do their jobs. And I, I think that's one of those things uh, that many people would not be aware of, that many teachers yes. would not be aware of. That Correct. they might assume, look, you know, one of the ways that you discuss in the book talking about controversial issues is with some level of disclosure to say, look, since you ask, um, you know, this is this is how I came to think about this. Right. These are my reasons for it. Right. But my job here is not to have you believe what I believe. My mm -hmm. job is to help you to come to your own conclusions, but based right. on reasons. You know, right. we want to think through these things, right? Right. So I'm going to disclose this a little bit. I think. You know, most most people might assume. Well, that seems you know that seems so reasonable. That's not you know that part's not indoctrination. This person's right. a professional. Um, also, there is a certain civic obligation. You know, and on and on and on. I think most people would be surprised that if push came to shove, and and, and let's be clear, there are many you know fine administrators right. who would support that teacher, right. and school boards as well who would support that teacher, and it wouldn't you know always necessarily go. But right. if it did, you know, yes. go to a court, that you know, I think a lot of people would be surprised that that's not something. Given that you current can, court doctrine, yeah. right? I mean, I think what you're saying is right. Also, I, I, I mean, I appreciate your point that there's enormous diversity across school districts. So if Deborah Mayer had done what she did 
in you know Greenwich Village of New York City, I don't think she would have been disciplined. I think she, she would have been the, like Meyer. the teacher of the year. Yeah, exactly, right? Okay. Um, so obviously, because American education is so irreducibly local, it's context specific. But you know, I do think the distinction that you raised earlier is at the heart of our book, um, uh, which is the difference between teaching and propaganda. And um, you know, in the book. We, we invoke Alexander Michael John, who is, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in our view, the most important philosopher that Americans know the least about. Uh -huh. And really, until the Cold War, the leading civil libertarian in the United States. And he, he, he said that he felt that teachers should be able, indeed should be enjoined to disclose their views, provided that they make it absolutely clear that these are their views and that nobody else in the room is enjoined to share them. And we don't go that far. I mean, we don't think that teachers should be required to share their views. We think it should be part of their professional discretion, right? Depending on the context, again, depending on the atmosphere, they should be allowed, if they think it's pedagogically wise, to share what they believe. Yeah. But in the same breath, they have to make it clear that nobody else is required to agree with them. And that's also a heavy lift because they're the adult in the room, they're grading the people in the room and evaluating them. Um, and so, you know, I think again, um, uh, we have to be realistic, not just about how frequent this is, but how difficult it is and yeah. difficult to do well. I would say, because here's one of the things, like for me, for me, in a hierarchy of classroom behaviors, facilitating a discussion where people actually talk with each other, yes. where it's not just this serial kind of, I'm gonna ask you a question and yes. respond, or maybe, yeah. where people are actually discussing, right? I think mm. there isn't anything in the classroom pedagogically that's harder. Yeah, and I that's agree. if you're talking about a poem, you know, or an article, or how you came to a particular proof. Building a but, wall on the Mexican border. But then you add yeah. to that, yeah, it, it's super, it's super fraught. It, it is. is. It is. It is. And they're taking cues from you. But in a way, that's Michael John's point. You know, one of his famous aphorisms was, slaves can't teach freedom. Um, he said, look, if as a teacher you're pretending that you're sort of this neutral um, Olympian figure standing up a mountain above the fray, first of all, you're lying, okay? But more than that, you're not giving students a model of democratic engagement. You're a political actor. You're a political figure, right, um, as a citizen. And so you should model that by being quite clear about what you believe and why so students can get a model of civic and democratic engagement. But to your point, especially in a discussion situation, it's hard to do that and also create an atmosphere where students feel free to disagree with you. If you're interested in thinking about how to establish a classroom conducive to discussing even the most challenging topics, check out my conversation with Paula Roy in Point of Learning, Episode 3. Okay, so toward the end of the interview with Professor Zimmerman, I asked one of my go-to questions, which is, is there anything you would have liked me to ask that I didn't? 
I think there's an interesting line of objection to the kind of argument I've been making, which you didn't raise, which is fine because it's a short interview. But I don't really um, disagree with you the, as the problem. The problem. <laughs> the, right, but, but, but the, I think the most powerful line of argument against what I'm saying now has to do with um, race and racism in the United States. And um, I think that, uh, um, you know, I've, I've had plenty of people say things like, look, you know, we can't engage in the kind of discussions you want about certain subjects because people in the class are going to be injured by that discussion because they come to it with a certain set of experiences and perspectives. And you could see this in our book in the conclusion, yeah. which we wrote about Ferguson. Yeah. So after Michael Brown was gunned down in Ferguson, there were protests all over Missouri and the nation. But when we looked at the local schools, most of them, not all, most of them were evading or avoiding the subject. And there were a number of reasons for it, but um, what a lot of educators in, in uh, majority-minority schools said is, you know, the kids have already been traumatized by this, right. all right? And we can't introduce this subject because it will re-traumatize them. You know, um, it will create so much psychic discomfort that it will inhibit learning rather than promote it. And I would say that, um, you know, I think the research base for those claims is quite small, uh, which should matter. Um, but beyond that, I would also say, and my basic retort to that is, you're right and you're wrong. You're right that a lot of these matters are deeply personal. You're right that many of them strike at our most fundamental identities as human beings. And you're also right that they can provoke strong negative emotions. You are right about all three of those things. But you are wrong if you think those things can or should be a bar on discussion. Why? Because every important claim provokes or offends somebody and raises difficult feelings. If it doesn't, it's probably not that important. So just one other anecdote. Um, you probably know the name Mary Beth Tinker, who was the 13-year-old girl that wore the armband to uh, school in Des Moines, I Court, yeah. Iowa in 1965 to protest the Vietnam War. It worked its way up to the Supreme Court to the iconic case Tinker v. Des Moines, mm -hmm. where the court declared that neither teachers nor students shed their constitutional rights at the schoolhouse gate. Um, Mary Beth Tinker is not that much older than I am, and I've become friends with her. Is that and right? she came, yes, yes, and she's a totally lovely, dynamic, fascinating superb person. She, uh, she's come to my class a few times here at Penn, and she came a couple, couple semesters ago to tell her story, and the first question, a student said, look, you know, Ms. Tinker, you were fighting the good fight. You were fighting the Vietnam War. This Milo Yiannopoulos clown, this Ann Coulter bozo, this Charles Murray person, they just hurt people. Why should we allow them to do that? And she said, look, at the school I went to in Des Moines, there were kids who had fathers and brothers that were dying in Southeast Asia. Do you think they weren't hurt by this snot-nosed kid wearing this emblem to school saying that their loved one was dying for a lie? If you think that didn't hurt them, you're not thinking. Of course it hurt them. It absolutely hurt them, as important speech always does. 
if hurt is going to be your rubric, there's not going to be speech at all. So I am not denying that a lot of these issues cause hurt. They do. But that cannot and must not be a bar on us as citizens talking about that. I could think of, again, somebody ill-prepared to have the discussion, you know, after Ferguson actually, Definitely. actually, you know, letting things... For sure, have, again, this make can it be worse. done poorly. But I, can, but I can also think of a, a place where if you have a kind of structure, you know, like, like something like that's used in seed, um, serial testimony, sure. where yeah. you're just going to speak for a minute, or right. pass, or not right. speak. But right. nobody's going to disagree with you. Nobody's going to interrupt you. Yes. But now we've at least made a place where, like, we are in the real world. Right. We are in this town where this happened. Right. And we're not going to judge any anything that anybody said. And we're not necessarily yes. we'll just give some space. But like, you know, there are yeah. there are different ways. It's and not the just devil like is you always stand, you stand the, up. Right. It's like, are you with the cops? Or are you with yeah. You know, like, yeah. And the devil is always in the details. You may know that uh, the seed I referred to a moment ago when I was talking about the practice of serial testimony is short for the National Seeking Educational Equity and Diversity Project. If you want to know more, I've got an episode for that, my most recent one, in fact, called Seed Folk. As a final highlight from this conversation to share with you, here's Jonathan Zimmerman on how important it is, regardless of how passionately a teacher may believe something, not to cross the line into indoctrination. A teacher's duty is never to persuade you of something, except perhaps the need to create environments where everybody is allowed to speak, hear, listen, and decide on their own. A teacher should be trying to persuade you of the importance of that environment. Not everybody believes in that, and I will say that I try to indoctrinate the evils of indoctrination. Um, I don't really admit dissent on that score. You know, um, uh, I think that as a teacher, your prime, indeed your only responsibility is to help people make up their own minds. Um, and I will not brook and I will not allow anything in my classroom that I think is going to inhibit that. You just offered about six great closing lines in a row. <laughs> are, are you going to try for any, anything else? This, 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 that, was, yeah. that was great. Uh, Sometimes uh, people begin a paper like three times, you got three introductions. And yeah, 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 yeah. Those are, those are all great like buttons. All right, good. Yeah. Good. My great thanks to Jonathan Zimmerman for sitting down to talk with me about one of my favorite topics, how we learn to discuss difficult issues. I've written a few pieces about this, so I'll share some of those on the show page for you. Thanks to Drew Azanaro for laying down guitar for the instrumental takes of Simon and Garfunkel's America for this episode. As always, Schaefer James supplies intro and outro instrumentals for the show. If you've ever wondered about the words to those songs, Schaefer is performing live each Sunday night at 7 Eastern throughout this period of social distancing from his home in Jersey City. You can find his weekly concerts on Instagram at Schaefer James Music. All one word, and that's Schaefer with a Y. Finally, thanks to you for listening, sharing, rating, and reviewing this show. When people you know, curious about what and how and why we learn, ask you for podcast recommendations, please 
tell them about Point of Learning, which is recorded, written, edited, and mixed by me here in the City of Good Neighbors, Buffalo, New York. I'm Peter Horn, and I will see you again just as soon as I can. Until then, stay safe and take care of yourself. One of the students in the class says, look, Ms. Tinker, um, uh, you, uh, sorry, that's my, that is, that is my phone. Sorry about that. So let's do three, two, one. Um, the, the, so pro, dude. Yeah. Um, Mary Beth Tinker came to my classroom and told her story.